text today comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And by way of reminder, this is the second week in a three-week treatment um, on this text. So beginning in verse 25, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, you may be seated. And children, uh, pre-K through second grade, are dismissed for Grace Kids. Uh, if we could have a parent go back to help them sign in, that'd be great. And then just remember to pick them up after the service as well. Now, if you'll pray with me uh, for a pastoral prayer. Father, we thank you that we could gather here this morning, uh, that we could be here to greet one another, to sing your praises and worship you, and to hear the gospel, your gospel preached. Lord, we praise you um, for you are gentle and lowly in spirit. We praise you that you have chosen to reveal the kingdom to us and have invited us to come and lay down our burdens at your feet. I pray, Lord, for those burdens this morning, uh, for those suffering from disease, from illness, from other health issues. Lord, for those struggling financially to provide for themselves or their family. God, I pray for those who are tired, struggling with burnout at work, at school, or in ho- at the home, just generally struggling with uh, burnout through this pandemic. Lord, for those who've been isolated and are in need of more Christian community in their lives, um, for those worried about or upset with uh, just the current political environment or the state of our country, for those struggling with addiction or anger or lust or envy or pride, Lord, you've invited us to lay all of these burdens down at your feet. God, I pray that you would help us to do just that that you would help us to rest in your faithfulness and your unending sovereign grace. Lord, grant us more faith to trust you to handle our burdens. Lord, we pray for an end of this pandemic. We pray for the health of our church, our families, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers. We pray, God, that you would sustain each and every household in this congregation and the church itself. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen marriages in our church. We pray that you would help us train up our children in the way they should go to instill in our children a love for you and for your word. God, we pray that you would continue to raise up volunteers to reopen all of our Sunday morning services, and we, we thank you for the volunteers we have. We pray, God, that you would give us leaders better than we deserve. We pray for our local elected leaders, our state representatives. We pray for our governor, our representatives in Congress, and our president. Lord, we pray that each one of these men and women would govern in righteousness, justice, and peace. And Lord, we pray for the elders of this church. Give us wisdom and unity to lead and shepherd this church according to your word. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you've been doing these things and for all you will continue to do to accomplish your redemptive work in our lives. And we just ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.
Before we dive in, two quick things. I wanted to let you know, many of you have met Erickson Joubert, the, the first of our pastoral residents. He's been here for about a month now. Today, I get, we get to welcome Jonathan Perdome. I know you were kept on the back porch from the first service crowd, but Jonathan Perdome, he is our second pastoral resident. He'll be a full-time pastor here at this church. Um, he flew down this weekend to get his home set up. You're flying back and driving your wife and two children down here later this week. So he is here, he's ready to dive in, and I know y'all will welcome him as well as you welcomed me when we did the same thing two and a half years ago. He comes to you by way of Italy, Mississippi, Italy, and most recently Memphis, and I'll let him explain more of his journey to y'all. Secondly, last family night, we talked about the need for help in our children's ministry if we are going to relaunch all of our Sunday morning ministries in this new two-service model. I want to say thank you. We're our goal, not, not our goal, the minimum number of people we need to say, yes, I'll volunteer is 75 members. And it is, it has to be members because there are children. So we want to know these people, uh, have background checks performed and provide the safest childcare that we can provide and Sunday school teaching. And so 52 in just six days, 52 uh, people have said, yes, I'll serve. And, and it doesn't mean you're serving every single week. It means about 14 to 16 Sundays in a year. And, um, and you'll never miss worship because of now being in, in two services because of COVID. So if you are a member, would you please uh, really consider helping us? This is, this is one of the ways you just promised to serve the kids. Uh, but it, it is, a, it is a, not only a service to the families. I think service is a service to you too. You get to know these families. You get to invest in these families. And in a time where we don't get to have a lot of community, this is a way to have community as well. So at the end of the service, I'm going to give you a, an opportunity to, uh, to do that. Now we can dive in. To Matthew chapter 11, we're continuing our snail's pace through this passage. Uh, we have, as a church, as many of you know, been reading the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And if you were here last week, you know that this passage that Ryan read, this, uh, this passage is the passage that the whole book was written from. And so I'm approaching this passage a little differently than I, than I would normally in my preaching. Instead of just addressing it in one Sunday, I'm addressing it in three Sundays. So this, I don't look at these as three separate sermons, really. I look at them as, as three messages that make up one sermon on one text. And so last week we looked at who, well, the overarching message is the invitation. The greatest invitation humanity is ever going to experience is given to us in this passage. And so the first Sunday we looked at who it is, how it is that we have access to this invitation. This Sunday we're going to look at who it is who's offering us this invitation, and then next Sunday we'll look at the invitation itself. So I've been thinking a lot about invitations, and there really are two elements to an invitation. You know, there's the invitation itself, but it's also really important, like, who's who's it coming from? That really matters, because Angela and I get a lot of special invitations in the mail to to do this credit card and save money or to bundle these services together and, and save money. And these kind of invitations tend to go right in the trash because, A, I don't care about that invitation, and B, I don't know and really don't trust the people who send it. But let's say, let's say I do like the invitation, but... I don't care for the person sending it. And so this could play out a couple of different ways. Let's say somebody invites me to my favorite steakhouse in town, La Cantina, and, and, and they want to invite me to a meal there. Well, the, what if the person who's inviting me really is a jerk and annoying and I don't like that person? 
That, that taints the invitation a little bit. And even if, if the person's really mean and says, hey, I don't have to be there. Here's a gift certificate. Even there, there's just a, there's a tinge in the soul that that invitation, even to go eat with somebody else, it's just, I'm not sure I want to accept it because of who it's coming from. But we can also look at it the other way. We can, uh, this, this is, it makes me think of Christmas in Oxford, Mississippi, which is where we spent last Christmas near where my wife is from. Uh, there's a friend of mine who has convinced my six-year-old that he is Donald Trump. And it's funny because he's a bald guy. And that was the first thing James said is, but you don't have hair. Where's your yellow hair? And, and he said, no, I, you know, when I'm, that's a wig. I put it on on TV. When I'm not in the White House, this is, this is where I am. And my six-year-old believes that this is Donald Trump in his secret hideout. So when we get an invitation to go over to that house, like functionally, we're not being asked to do anything different than going over to anybody else, any other friend's houses in Oxford. But to my six-year-old, it's special because of who it is that's extending this invitation. He really still thinks this, this is the then president of the United States extending this invitation. So for him, who it is, it makes a big difference. Who it is extending any invitation makes a, it makes a big difference. And only more so when we are talking about the most important invitation humanity has ever, has ever been offered. And so we'll look at what that invitation is next week. But this week, we really, I really want to drill down on one verse in verse 27 and look at who it is who's extending this invitation to us. Verse 27 is kind of a bombshell verse because up until this point, Jesus has been kind of sneaky about revealing who he is. I mean, you you think about the times where Jesus heals somebody or performs some miracle. And then in the early part of his ministry, what does he say? Now, keep this to yourself. Keep this quiet. Don't tell anybody. And why, why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus knows that when people really understand who he's claiming to be, that they're going to kill him. And so he's biding his time. He's, he's waiting until the hour has come. And the theological term for this is veiled disclosure. He's veiling who he is in the way that he discloses himself until it's the right time. And so in this verse, this is another, it's one of those times where he steps up his disclosure of who he is. Verse 27 says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus is saying that all things have been handed over to him by my father. He doesn't say the father. He says my father. And this is, this is really significant. And Jesus is saying, no one knows the father, but me and no one knows me, but my father. And then he takes it even further and he says that none of us will know the Father unless Jesus reveals him to us. So what is Jesus claiming here? By entering into this father-son relationship that he exclusively has with the Father, he's clearly increasing his gradual disclosure of who he is and claiming that at some level he is equal with God the Father. He's on the same plane as God the Father. He's doubling down He's doubling down on his divinity, his divinity, which is ultimately, of course, what got him crucified. They understood him to be claiming that he was God. You can't just go around and say you're God. I mean, even today, if someone comes around, goes around saying they're God, what do we think? You're crazy. 
Like you're delusional. This is not right. And a lot of the people who try to debunk the Bible will go to this verse and say, we all know no one claims to be God and they're, they're actually listened to. This had to have been created later down the road. But the reality is that Jesus does claim to, he can claim to be God and he does in this passage. So who is it that is extending this invitation to us? Jesus, who is God. That's who's extending this invitation to us. This invitation isn't the invitation of a lunatic. It isn't the invitation of a good moral teacher. And it's not even the invitation of a prophet. This is the invitation of Jesus, who is God. And Jesus says that not only is he the only one who knows the Father, and that only that people will only come to know the Father through him, he's making this claim that it's only through him. So he's not just saying, I'm a way, he's, making, he, he's saying he's the way. And he's not bashful in any, in any way about the fact that he is the only way to the Father. Now, I don't think there would be a lot of argument in this room, probably, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But, but I do think that lots of us, especially in our theological stream, we can minimize or dilute what Jesus is saying when he says, no one can know the Father but through me. To know... In the Bible, it's an intimate term. It's, there's a big difference between knowing about and knowing somebody. In most languages, the, the way I understand it, they actually have different words. We, we in English, unfortunately, have the same word to know, the same word to love, and you know, we love our wife and this food the same way, and it just gets confusing. And, and to know would be the same kind of deal. Uh, Jonathan Pernome knows Italian better than any American I know. And, uh, and in Italian, there's a word know about, sapere, and the word to know, conoscere. So it's just, in, if you know Spanish, I'm sure it sounds similar. I don't know Spanish. But th- there's a big difference in knowing about and knowing. And Jesus is claiming this kind of intimate knowledge. The only way that you will know the Father is by knowing me. And the way that we dilute this teaching in our church is to understand that and to be saying, well, yeah, what Jesus is saying is because of Jesus, we have access to the Father. And that's true, but there's so much more about what Jesus is communicating here. It's not about just mere access to the Father. And this is what one-third of the book, Gentle and Lowly, is about. I think we have this tendency to think of Jesus as the gentle and lowly part of the Trinity. <laughs> you know, we can hear Jesus saying, oh yeah, you're good with me because I'm gentle and lowly and and you're technically okay with the father, but you're not really. He's still kind of angry at you. Now, Jesus is the gentle and lowly part. The, the father's the one who's, who's got beef with you, and I've, I've held it off for now. And this is what, this kind of understanding of God the father and God the, and God the son being different in their character gave way to heresies like Marcionism, which said, well, you have this one God of the Old Testament, and then this Jesus in the New Testament. They just can't fundamentally be the same God. But what we see is that God the Father and God the Son, they have the same heart, they have the same character. Even if they are different persons in the Godhead, they're no different in any way in in their their character and their hearts and their desires and motives. Um, You may remember Jesus in John 14 says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's the kind of claim that he's saying. 
Jesus is the walking embodiment of the Father. He is the exact imprint of the Father. And the more we know him, the more we know about the Father. So this isn't just being reduced to, because of Jesus you have access to the Father, you're worthy to stand in front of the Father. Jesus is saying, you have no way of knowing the Father because of your sin. You're blind to everything about the Father. So I've come, and in my character, you get to see who the Father is. So it's not just access, it's growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and in that relationship, knowing his character more, and everything that we learn about the character of Jesus is also true about God the Father. And Jesus is the only way we can see that, because no one else has ever come and perfectly embodied the character of God. So, there's probably a lifetime worth of sermons here. All the ways that Jesus can show us more about the character of the Father. So I'm just going to pick four randomly, kind of randomly. I'm going to pick four because I just want you to see that it's true and, and kind of lay a foundation for how we can know about the Father through Jesus. And hopefully that can be a foundation that we all build on for the rest of our lives. So first, four ways. His heart is lovely. Another way to say it is his heart is beautiful. And too often, theologians, they accurately transfer uh, they, they transfer theological information without in any way transferring the beauty of that knowledge. Jonathan Edwards says that humans are created with a built-in draw toward beauty. Dane Ortland, in the book we're reading, says we're arrested by it. We're arrested by this beauty. We're magnetically pulled toward beauty, and that also applies to the spiritual realm. Edwards goes so, so far as to say that the most beautiful things in this world... So when you think of the most beautiful things in the world, whatever that is to you, it is a shadow or an echo of the beauty of Christ and thus a shadow or an echo of the loveliness and beauty of God the Father. And I think, you know, Edwards is known as the greatest theologian America has ever had. And I think one of the reasons he, he so impacted this nation is because, is not because he just knew a lot, although he did, but because in his preaching, he didn't seek just to lay information out. He wanted to woo people in to the loveliness and the beauty that is God the Son and God the Father by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And Ortland points out that in the summer of 1740, Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon to the church, only to the children. The whole point, just if you're one through 14, this Sunday is for you, which I thought I, I may do that one day. That kind of sounded, I, I want, I want my kids to listen to me more. Um, but as I understand it, this was a shorter sermon and the main focus to these children was love Jesus more than anything else in the world. And I want you to just listen to a little piece of it with me to see how he didn't just transfer knowledge. He wooed them into the beauty and the loveliness of God the Son, and God the Father. He had six points. This is just one of them. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much as exceed all that which is in the world as is the sun brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness toward their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus' kindness. And Edwards clearly understood this connection between the character of the son and the character of the father because later in that same sermon, he says, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. 
and everything that can be lovely in any man is in him, for he is a man as well as God, and he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and every way the most excellent man that ever was. So again, I'm drawing from the book, we would do well to ask ourselves and to ask our our church in our own lives when we think of the glory of God. What is it that draws us? What is it that makes us want to conquer our sin? What is it that really turns us into a radiant people? Because we, we, is it you think of the glory of God and you think about his, his grandness, his, his great transcendence? Do we think about how large the universe was, is and, and what that communicates about his, his character? I don't think those are the things that are going to actually draw us to him. They're all true. But when we think about the glory of God, the thing that is going to draw us in is not his greatness, but his goodness, his loveliness, his beauty. That's what draws people in. And that's what Jesus is telling us. And so, only Jesus knows the Father. And it is only through knowing Jesus that we can know the Father. And there is a claim of exclusivity here, but it's not limited to mere access to the Father. It's a claim that Jesus is the only one because of who he is and his heart and his character that can give us a glimpse of the loveliness and beauty of God the Father. Secondly, God is compassionate. God is a deeply emotional being, which can sound weird to say because when we say somebody's emotional, that's not generally a compliment. He's not erratically emotional. God is the most emotionally healthy being that has ever or will ever exist. And this is mostly chapter 11 of Gentle and Lowly. It's so easy to see God, at least God the Father, God the Jesus, you know, God the Son, we see some emotions, but God the Father, we can think he's more emotionally detached or just constantly angry with us at some level. But we see so much about the emotional life of Christ that we can learn about the emotional life of God the Father. So just consider one verse, John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. These, this is a deeply emotional God that we have. And there's a doctrine called the permanent humanity of Jesus. Sometimes we have this idea that Jesus took on flesh for about three decades, and then when he ascended, he left all that behind, and he, he returned to his disembodied state. That's not only wrong, it's, it's actually kind of heresy. But Jesus is permanently He's permanently human as well as divine. And that matters because Jesus today is the same as the Jesus that we read about in in his emotional state. And that Jesus communicates who God the Father always has been and always will be. So if that's true, what emotion do we see most from Jesus? Compassion. Compassion is the main thing that we see. The great uh, Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, wrote, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, whose whole life was a ministry of mercy marked by good deeds, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. So I'm going to take an illustration from the book and I'm going to apply it through my own life. 
If you've ever been, how many of you have been to Vatican City? I'm curious. I always want to know how many people. Okay, a number of you. If you if you approach St. Peter's Basilica um, in Vatican City, there's this this large road lined on both sides by people with the most horrifying ailments. And some of them are there for healing, most of them are there for money, but you know, they don't have a lot of other options. And I feel like the, the worst of humanity could walk down that street and be, be grieved, feel compassion for where they are. I know I walk down that street and I'm just, I, I feel like I'm overflowing with compassion. But in that moment, that, that's just a, a small, pale, bitty glimpse of the compassion that Jesus has for us all of the time, in all of our sorrows, in all of our, in our troubles. That's just our most compassionate moments. It's just the most a sinful person can do. But Jesus doesn't lack in his compassion, and that's a picture of the compassion of God the Father as well. Uh, I was listening to a podcast last week, and the guest was Tish, Tish Harrison Warren, and she was talking about emotional discipleship. And she was making the case that a large a large reason that so many Gen Z and millennials are leaving the church is that they don't have a good, theo- a good theology for evil, understanding why evil is in the world. And she makes the case that actually you don't, you don't need to understand it. You just need to really understand that we have a God who's compassionate about it and committed to restoring the world the way that it should be. And so this is just one part of what she calls emotional discipleship. And she argues that if if we can't be emotionally disi- we can't be emotionally discipled if we don't engage with the emotions of our God. And so if we aren't emotionally discipled, if we don't see the emotions of Jesus and understand that those are perfect embodiments of the emotions of God the Father, then when we're faced with grief and suffering and loss, which is basically the problem of evil, then we're not going to know where to take that. We're going we're gonna to run to anger. We're going to run to addiction. We may just run to being a jerk, maybe just being a jerk on social media. The, we don't know how to process this. And so that's why she says we need emotional discipleship. Christian discipleship isn't just a transfer of information. It's connecting with the most emotionally healthy being ever at a heart level, being transformed more into his image And then, if we're just going to talk about compassion, the more we understand the compassion of God, the Son, and God, the Father, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we're going to become more compassionate people. And Jesus is the only way we can be emotionally discipled and connect with God the Father. Third, he's a friend. This comes from chapter 12. Remember a few weeks ago, we were looking at the way Jesus was attacked. He was attacked by the Pharisees for, for doing what? Being a friend of sinners. That was the worst they could do. He, he's a friend to these kinds of people. And friendship really, this, is, this really is a hard thing to engage with in our culture, this idea of friendship. I think women tend to do it better than men, but intimate, non-sexual Christian friendship is much better understood in centuries past than it is today. You know, we read in our culture now passages like David and Jonathan, where, where David said, I loved him more than any of my wives. And where do our minds go? Sexual. Well, no one before the 19th century would have ever inferred that because they understood there is a kind of intimacy and friendship among people of the same gender that is totally appropriate and life-giving and natural and God's design for us. There's a professor... Uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University named Richard Godbeer. 
And he's done a lot of study on male friendship. And he examined the letters uh, that, that men in colonial times would write to each other and how intimate and non-erotic they were, but very intimate. And he makes a really compelling case that we as men today just really don't know much about friendship. So if that's the case, I mean, how are we to really engage with Jesus as our friend? We're going to limit that relationship the way that we limit our relationships today. In southern Italy, it wasn't uncommon if I'm walking down the street with a friend for that friend just to, you know, link arms with me, pull me in tight and just keep walking with me. Incredibly uncomfortable to me. And, and it wasn't uncommon for them to greet me with a kiss when, when, I, when I showed up. Not what I'm used to. But a lot of culture still today and most cultures in centuries past, especially Jesus' culture, they had a much deeper understanding of what it meant to be a friend. And if we allow the world, the world around us to be the one that dictate what friendships look like, then we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to lose out on a huge piece of God's design for human flourishing. And we're going to lose out on understanding what it means that Jesus is our friend. And because Jesus is our friend, so is God the Father. So what does it mean that Jesus is a friend? It means Jesus enjoys spending time with us. It means that we feel welcomed, we feel comfortable by him. Luke 15, 1 shows how Jesus, a friend, draws people in. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. He was the kind of friend that people just gravitated towards. And if you think about it, most of us have these concentric circles of friendship. You know, the, the, the bullseye would be the most intimate uh, circle where everything is shared. And then you have concentric circles outside of that. And the sad reality is that most of us, we aren't, we don't have friendships that really go past level three or two. We really don't. I know that there's been studies on, on communication levels between spouses, and this one study identified five levels of communication. Level five is like elevator talk. Where you're not really sharing anything. Level one was where you share everything. Your hopes, your fears, your desires, your loves. And the study showed that 80% of marriages really exist in that three zone. And so if that's true of marriages, why would it not be more true of friendships? And Ortland challenges, challenges us to ask ourselves, who is it in our lives that we really feel safe with? Who are the people that we really feel like we can share everything with? And here's the promise of the gospel and the message of the whole Bible. In Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy us rather than refuse us. There's nothing that we can do to make Jesus a better friend or a worse friend. He's just our friend because he's our friend. He is, he is faithful when we are fickle. He is stable when we are fragile. And if he is the friend at the bullseye of these concentric circles, then it's going to take all of your other friendships and jolt them at least one category closer. In Revelation 3... We see that Jesus is our friend knocking at the door. When we deserve it the least, when we're straying from him as a friend, he's knocking at the door saying, can I just come in and eat with you? Can I spend time with you? Can I restore, or, you know, re restore, redeem, nourish this relationship that we have? He pursues us to the bitter end. That's the kind of friend that we have in Jesus. And that character is the same, that character in Jesus is the exact same thing we have in God the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And then fourth, 
He is merciful. And I think this is probably where the contrast between uh, the, the God the Son and God the Father is biggest, because we can see Jesus the Son as the, you know, the nice, compassionate one. We can see him as the merciful one, and, and God the Father, not so much. But thankfully, we're on good terms with him because of what God the Son did. And people have even tried to make God the Father out as some cosmic child abuser, child abuser. Because God the Father, to satisfy his own anger, sent God the Son to die. How can you follow a God like that? But what people don't understand is that no one in the Godhead needed persuasion to be a part of this. Jesus wanted to be the atonement just as much as God the Father wanted to send Jesus to atone for the wrath. There... It's called the Pactum Salutis. The Godhead in eternity past all agreed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we would redeem humanity and all were just as eager as the other to make it happen. The triune God agreed before the creation of the world. No one needed persuading. And this is why Paul can understand and call God the Father the Father of mercies. He is a Father so merciful that the best Father in this world and there is a best father in this world. I don't know who it is, but it's not me. But the best father in the world, whatever mercy he shows is, to use Edward's words, a shadow, but an echo of the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ and that we have in God the Father. John 14 again, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But we have to know Jesus to be able to see this. Because nothing else in our world is modeling this character of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Ortland says, In him we have seen heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs in, in time and space. When we see the heart of Christ, we are seeing who God himself most deeply is. Probably my favorite part of this book was when we were asked, what is the disposition of God? You know, what is, what is he on, ed, on the edge of his seat eager to do? If you catch me off the edge of my seat, or if you catch me off guard, uh, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. This is Ortland. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing. The impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy, that is a God of mercy. The Bible says our God is rich in mercy. Do you know that there's no other thing in the Bible that, is, that God is said to be rich in? God is this type of billionaire and his currency is mercy. And every time we sin, we draw from that merciful account. But unlike normal bank accounts, in some mysterious way, every time we draw from the account, the account gets bigger. And mercy isn't a thing that God has. It's just who God is. It's who he is in his nature, in his core. And we should be thankful for this because in the words of Paul, we received this mercy while we were yet sinners we received this mercy when we were dead in our trespasses, while we were carrying out the desires of the flesh as rebellious children of wrath. That's when we received this mercy. I really could preach a year's worth of sermons, I think, on this. But I just want you to know, for the, for the time being, that this is true. That what we understand about the nature of Jesus is what we should also understand about the nature of the Father. They're, they're not different in the ways that their character is. And it isn't just one 
a one-time legal transaction that Jesus is doing. Although there's a very important one-time legal transaction, the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is after that transaction takes place, getting to know Jesus, getting to know who he is. And as you do, you're getting to know the Father. There's no difference. God is something different than we would naturally understand because of our sinfulness, because of our inability to see God, who God is. And that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's allowing us to see who God the Father is. And he is making a strong claim in this verse that he is the only way. And that feels offensive to people. And I don't think Jesus is just trying to be ticky. I don't think he's trying to, in like a humanly way, put the spotlight on him because he's jealous. I mean, he is technically jealous and it should be on him. But he's, he's not doing it in um, an unloving way. He's simply saying, if you want to know God the Father, he's the only way. Only Jesus perfectly embodies the character of the Father. And if you want to know the Father, Jesus will make that happen through his life, death, and resurrection. And then he will show us through the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, who the Father is. And for the rest of our life, until we have no more sin and we are with God in eternity, he will be with us on this journey, showing us who God the Father is. Jesus didn't come to mend He came to heal. And at OGC, the reason that we care so much about sound doctrine is to preserve the beauty of God. We we want the full beauty of the character of the whole Godhead to be on display. That's why we care about doctrine. That's the only reason that we care about doctrine. And we can only know the beauty and loveliness of God the Father by seeing the loveliness and the beauty and the mercy and the friendship that we have in God the Son. So there is a beautiful story to tell about God the Father, a more beautiful story than probably any of us can imagine, and Jesus is the one telling us that story. And praise God, because of the Holy Spirit, we can see that story, we can desire that God, and Jesus is going to walk with us at every point to help us to see him more clearly and to desire him, to desire him for ourselves and to desire that other people in our lives would know him as well. So that's who the invitation comes from. Next week, we get to look at the invitation itself. Let's pray. God, I am, again, just thankful and humbled and convicted at how even I can imagine the character of Jesus is different than the character of you, the Father. And God, I pray that, that, today, all of us would would understand more about your character, more about God the Son, and obviously by connection, more about God the Father because of God the Holy Spirit. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.